So we just got in the habit of giving you guys the scripture that we're going to go over, but tonight probably didn't help a lot uh, since we gave you the entire book of Job. And uh, it's a long one, but um, the series that we're about to start is called Ancient Truths for Modern Lies. And each week I'm going to take the major theme that is in the book and talk about the lies the culture tells on that topic. So each of the wisdom books, most of you know this, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and say it again. There are five wisdom books, and some people think only three. I, I think there are five they are grouped together uh, both because of their content and their style. They're all poetry. So you, you've got Proverbs, Psalms, Job, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. And all five of them are poetry. So they, they have a similar structure. They're, they're not in any way grouped in terms of chronological order or the time they were written or the time things happened. Most of them have a combination of narrative and poetry, but mostly they're poetry. And the poetry is, is poetry with a point. It's, uh, it's got a, a design to it. And uh, while you could probably find multiple themes that go with each one of them. I've selected a major theme from each of the wisdom books, and that's what I'm going to preach for the next five weeks. So we're going to start with Job and suffering. Then we'll move to Psalms and prayer. Then we'll go to Proverbs and uh, discernment. Um, then we'll go to Ecclesiastes and perspective, and then we'll do Song of Psalms and talk about love. Um, and yes, I'll handle Song of Solomon like it was supposed to be handled. It's raw, it's intimate. It, it was meant to show us that God created us to love fearlessly. And uh, in Proverbs, we, we get a lot of uh, instruction from a father to a son. And as we who are fathers of sons know that we're trying to help critical thinking and, and making decisions and uh, the risk reward of decisions that have consequences. So that'll be a lot of fun. Um, Ecclesiastes is just a great poem. It's a wonderful, wonderful book. And it, it really talks about putting things in balance. There's a time for everything is sort of the, the signature in there. And then Job, of course, uh, what do we think of one word when we think of Job? Suffering. Suffering. <laughs> and all the, the questions that uh, come along with that, uh, why do we suffer? So what I'm after in this series, what I'm going to try to do is to talk about the difference between information and wisdom. And the, the writer of a book that I read over the summer, his name was Brett McCracken, and he wrote a book called The Wisdom Pyramid. 
and he he built a, a a pyramid much like the food pyramids that we see in health class and he talked about the importance of various sources of information and of course the the, the scripture was on the the bottom of the food pyramid and he worked his way all the way up to social media and how social media does have a role but if you think of the top of a pyramid compared to the bottom that's how much he values the scripture over social media and the thing that really got my attention in his book is that he said we do not lack for information one person said that we receive more information in 12 hours than a 17th century man received in his entire life. The number of words that are in our vocabulary, the speed at which we process information. So we get too much, too fast. And one of the things he said was that, and we process everything through a lens of how it affects me. So when I receive information, what's in it for me? What of this do I need to know? What of this do I need to retain? How does this affect my family, my job, my portfolio? That, that we get too much information too fast and we view it through the lens of how it affects me. And he says, compare wisdom which is information, yes, but let's use a different word, instruction, where we might sit on it for a while and, and, and think about how a piece of information relates to other pieces of information. It's as if I was, was going to take in some news, I, I might try to have five or six different sources of news from all different perspectives. If I'm studying the scripture and I, I want to see what scholars have said about a passage of scripture, I might read a, a commentary that's very conservative. I might need a, read a commentary that's not as conservative, one that's older, one that's newer. And so we, the, the, the difference between information and, and wisdom is basically critical thought. And as a, as a teacher for two decades, one of my goals was, was, don't, don't let me tell you what to think. Let me tell you how to think. Don't, don't, just, don't just receive information from me, but, but receive lots of different perspectives, and then you, you use your own skills that you're developing. And that's what I think that's what the writers of the wisdom books are telling us. So when the writer of Proverbs says, my son, hear my words, he knows that, some of the words the son will take in and some of them he'll discard. The, the writer of Ecclesiastes, the preacher, he, he says these, these are some things to think about. The Psalms, of course, when we talk about prayers in the Psalms, uh, there, there are all kinds of prayers in the Psalms. But then there's also all kinds of ways that the world tells us to ask for help. There's all, all kinds of ways that the, the world tells us to seek peace. And in today's uh, scripture, there are all kinds of ways that the world tells us to explain suffering. Now, as we get started, what do you think is the prevailing way 
that the world explained suffering in Job's day. Now, to, to give it a, a time period, this is one of the oldest stories in the Bible, with the exception, of course, of, of the early chapters in Genesis. Job is probably before Abraham. So, so the, the events of Job are, are probably before, uh, after Noah, but before Abraham. And so this is one of the oldest stories we have. With that in mind, what's your guess as to how people tried to explain suffering back then? You've sinned. Either you or one of your ancestors did something wrong. Yeah. There's, there's no sin that is unpunished and no punishment that is not somehow related to sin. Now, how long did that way of thinking last? It still exists. Still exists. That's, that's, that's why people are going to be interested in Job explaining suffering, because we still think that way. People talk about karma. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's either consequence or karma. So it's, it's either something you did, and we all know payback is tough, uh, and, or it's just bad luck, bad genes. You, you, you don't deserve cancer. You just got bad genes, the bad circumstance. Or, or there's some other explanation, right? So we, we either blame God or we blame circumstances or we blame karma. And it seems like it's just as immature in our view of suffering as it was uh, back in Job's day. So the story of Job, the title of the book is the main character's name. And translated from Hebrew, the word Job could either mean uh, to come back or repent, or it could mean persecuted. There's, uh, there's some ambiguity as to what the, the, the title actually means. Now, does it bother anybody that it feels a little bit like his name was given to him because of his story. We usually think of names given at birth and maybe a child lives into the name, but it's not uncommon for a book of the Bible to have a, a title that sort of describes what happens in the book and it may or may not be the character's main name. Is... Okay, critical thought here. Is Job historical or is it a parable? It describes Satan and God talking. In, and so how can, how can we establish that as a historical fact? So maybe it's a little bit of both. <laughs> maybe it's a little bit of uh, we... There's, there's enough historical tidbits in it to place it in a, a northern Arabia. This, this is really fascinating. And 
I don't I don't often find out something completely new when I study I did today. Uh, there are no Hebrews in this story. Everybody in the story is from Arabia. There's there Uz is in Arabia. There's no it, it didn't take place in Israel. Uh, there's no Israelites in the story. Uh, there's uh, uh, let's see characters are Job, God, Satan, uh, Job's wife, and Job's four friends. So there's there, there's that's all the characters that are in the story. And so there there aren't any Hebrews in the story, but but they embraced this as one of their stories. Now, I'm going to agree with Emily that there, there's a little bit of allegory in it because there are stories like it in almost every civilization tradition. There is, there is a story in the, uh, Nelson, you were talking about the Egyptians. There's a story in the uh, Arabian culture. The, there's a story in, in almost every culture about somebody who suffered unjustly. The difference in this one and what leans it into history is that the, um, the, the, the settings, the, the descriptions of animals and places, uh, they, they are very contextually accurate. And the fact that it was quoted uh, quite um, freely, both in Old and New Testament, I think it straddles a little bit. Emily, you're right. We, we, we don't know who recorded the conversation between God and his staff. Uh, you know, he gathered them all for staff meeting and uh, item of business. Have you thought about my, my, my servant, Job? We don't know who uh, had an inspiration from uh, God to write that down. Obviously, nobody was there to eavesdrop. And so we, we, but it, but remember, it's poetry. It could be that the poet was setting up the interaction with God, and and that's the way he chose to set it up. And then the narrative part, the the suffering of Job, is historical, and then the uh, responses of his friends. Obviously, somebody took care to write down very, very elaborate responses. Let me kind of give you a, a, a sense of the structure of the book. Have I bothered anybody yet? <laughs> Does it bother you that, that a lot of Bible books are, are a combination of parable and history? Doesn't bother me at all. Uh, God... God has given us his truth in a way that we can receive it. And uh, these are poetry books. All of them are poetry. And I, I've never known a poet who, uh, who was, was very set on staying historical. And so this is going to weave in and out a little bit, and it shouldn't bother any of us. It's what, it's what God wanted us to have. It's an emotional, uh, poetic um, it's a raw uh, book, but it's not supposed to be narrative. It's supposed to be poetry. And so when the poet says, let me, let me figure out how to set this up. So if you were to outline Job, 
you would have kind of a prologue with the first two chapters. You have the scene in heaven, and then we have all of the bad things that happened to Job. And then Job gives a, a we were introduced to three of his four friends at the very end of chapter two, and then verses three through 37 are speeches. They are uh, the, you almost can see this as a, as a play, like a Greek tragedy that's, that's being put on, right? You have the scene in heaven, and then you have the horrible things that happen to Job. And then you have a, a character who comes on stage and he is Elihu and, or he is Bildad or he is Eliphaz and he is, he's telling us uh, why he thinks these things are happening. And he addresses his remarks to Job and each of the, uh, there, there are three cycles of speeches within that part of the scripture. So, so beginning in chapter 3 and all the way through chapter 37, you have three rounds of, or three cycles of speech making, and they all have a similar structure. Job has a complaint. Then one or more of his friends responds to his complaint, and then Job responds to their response. And then one of them responds to Job's response to their response. And then Job has another complaint. So chapters 4 through 14 are the first cycle of speeches. One point on that real quick, because something that fascinates me, and I didn't notice it and probably until about a, about a year ago, I look at Job chapter 2, verse 13, something stood out to me. Job's friends get a lot of grief for perhaps not giving the best counsel. Uh, but at one point it says this, they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights and no one spoke a word to him. Uh, for they saw that his suffering was very great. Um, that, that's remarkable to me. Their friends cared enough for him to do that, cared enough also to give him bad counsel. But, I mean, I, I'm more guilty usually of giving the bad counsel than I am, you know, sitting with someone for that length of time and just pouring into someone like that. I think I've told this story before, but when my dad died, my teaching assistant, my PhD student, who was my TA, he came to my house and he knocked on my door and he said, I am Job's three friends come to sit with you in silence. Oh, that makes sense. And, and it was the most meaningful thing anybody could have said to me. In my Bible, I wrote, I wish they would have stayed in silence. <laughs> when they speak, they presume. When they presume, they sin. When they speak, they presume. When they presume, they sin. And I should have said, when I speak, I presume. And when I presume, I sin. So thanks, Gary. That's that's really one of my favorite uh, verses in Job, uh, other than the one that, that screams for marriage counseling. In uh, verse 9, his wife makes a cameo appearance, 
And she says, do you still hold fast to your integrity, curse God, and die? <laughs> I guess there wasn't a prenuptial agreement. Uh, she just said, why don't you just curse God and die? As I recall, though, he didn't mention it later on. I'm I think sorry he, lost he, he may have written her out of his will. <laughs> um, I had a note that he, he didn't mention her, so I don't know. Well, at the end, though, doesn't it say he had more kids and he was blessed even more? Yeah, he had a lot of them. So yeah, there was, I'm guessing she was involved there was, in some way. There was, there was some wife that entered the yeah. picture later on. So we assume that they at least had a good counseling session and made up. Um, verse 10 in chapter 2 is kind of a key verse. Um, in all of this, Job did not sin. So the the writer, the poet, the narrator, he tells us that Job did not sin with his lips. I think we will identify that Job is going to sin a little bit later on, but it's more about his pride than it is his words. The second cycle of speeches starts in chapter 15. Um and it goes through chapter 21 and then, or 22, uh, people are completely in agreement of where to put uh, chapter 22. But uh, I, I have in my Bible, I wrote the third cycle of speeches is chapter 23 through chapter 31. And then uh, in chapter 32, we meet a fourth friend, Elihu, who is apparently a, an apprentice, a, a young man who did not feel like he had um, permission to speak because he was so much younger than the rest of them. He, he said, I, I, I'm young. Uh, uh, and he then he pats himself on the back a little bit. But he says, uh, just because I'm young doesn't mean I don't have wisdom. And he speaks a lot about the spirit of God in me. Um, but he still doesn't get it right. So let's go back to the first cycle of speeches. And uh, we, we kind of get um, a, a little bit of what's going on. Job has an outburst where he curses the day he was born. And he wonders why he's still allowed to live. Why don't you just take me? And so his first friend, Elphaz, the Temanite, he starts to speak. And basically his whole line of thinking is the innocent don't suffer. They just don't. And, and he starts with a presumption that, to me, represents a lot of the worldly view of suffering. You know, whenever we hear of somebody having an accident, traffic accident, after we get past, was anybody hurt? What's the next question we ask? Whose fault, Whose fault was it? Did you get hit or did you hit someone? Because we have to establish blame. That's that's the way we're wired. And and we've probably grown out of that with a, a, a lot of the diseases that we have. It's 
It's rare that we try to attribute cause to something like cancer. But if somebody has lung cancer, what's what's something that somebody's going to whisper at some time or other? Did they, were they a smoker? Did they bring this on themselves? Uh, did they uh, somehow cause this? Was there something hereditary in your heart disease? You know, either you sinned or your dad sinned. You know, and I, I have apparently have heart disease. And my father died of heart disease. So, so you know, what, what causes it, right? It's, it's, it's got to have a cause. It can't just happen. And, and so Eliphaz represented a prevailing thought that the innocent just can't suffer. And uh, so the, the first cycle of speech, um, we get uh, the entrance. We're introduced to the uh, shortest man in the Bible. Who is it, Gary? Zacchaeus. He was a wee little man. But Bildad was shoe height. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. We'll be here all week. We'll be here all week. Tip your waiter. So Bildad the shoe height, uh, he comes in and, and he rebukes Job for rebuking Eliphaz. So he he comes right back at him and and then Job comes right back at him and says, my complaint is just. There's that there, Suffering is more complex than just an algorithm of choices. It's suffering cannot be so easily explained. And that's, that's what Job is trying to say beginning in, in chapter six. Uh, he, he said, oh, that my vexation was weighed and my calamity was laid in the balance, for then it would be heavier than the sand of the sea. Therefore, my words have been rash. The arrows of the Almighty are in me. And, and so he, he's basically saying it's more complicated than that. There's something else going on. And I don't know if you've ever had that, that feeling where it, it's almost easier if you can say, I made a poor choice. I suffer in my job. I hate my job, but I took this job. I, I said yes to this job. Or uh, uh, the my neighbor is this or that or the other. Well, that's that's not random. That's just relation. But Job is saying, I've got no idea why I'm suffering, and it even if even if Job had been able to identify his sin, and, and I think he, he searched his, his soul to try to figure it out. But we as the reader have the unfortunate prompting that God has already told us that Job had not sinned with his lips. He'd, he'd already told us it was a, a righteous man. And we have, uh, and, and the word Satan in there is not the same word for devil, it's really the better word there is accuser. And what you have in chapter one is a courtroom scene where, where somebody is bringing God on trial. And so the accuser is saying, your, your creation, they're just puppets. They, they praise you because they have everything they need. They worship you because they don't want for anything. Take some stuff away. Cause them a little bit of pain, and you'll see how devoted they really are. 
And so that's what the whole setup is. And then the, the friends that come to Job, they just can't get their mind around. It's, it's almost like they're trying to waterboard a confession out of it. His wife, curse God and die. Admit what you did. Just, just get it out and make all this stop. Just, we're going to, what are the, the beatings will continue till the morale improves. We're, we're just going to keep on hammering you until you finally confess. So the second cycle of speeches, beginning in chapter 15, the three friends speak, and Job responds to each one in turn. The speeches are a little bit shorter. And if you kind of look between the lines, you almost see that they're losing their temper. The, the words are a little more pointed. The, uh, uh, the accusations are a, a little bit more sharp. It's like uh, you, you think you're wise. Eliphaz ridicules his wisdom. Uh, Job continues to see his um, uh, suffering as, um, as, as, as God doing something, and he knows not why. And uh, at the end of uh, the first cycle, he again longed for death. And then chapter 16 in the second cycle, he, he's losing hope from any the, the the theme song is, why don't I just die? And Bildad says, I'm having none of that. Uh, why do you keep speaking this way? Why do you think we're so stupid? There's three of us. We're unanimous in our agreement that you did something at some point in time. And uh, the second cycle, Zophar, his, uh, so you have Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar, the, the first three friends, and Zophar uh, speaks his last contribution at the end of the second cycle. Um, Chapter 20. All right. So then in the third cycle of speeches, Eliphaz once again takes the initiative. You see in verse uh, chapter 22. And um, it, he, he says something interesting at the beginning. He says, is it any pleasure to the Almighty if you are in the right, or is it gain to him if you are blameless? It is for your fear of him that he reproves you and enters into judgment with you. Is not your evil abundant? Then he, he gives him some specific accusations. And we don't know if these are true or if, if, uh, Maybe there's some jealousy in here, but he says, you exacted pledges from your brothers, verse six. You've given no water to the weary, uh, chapter 22, I'm sorry. You have withheld bread from the hungry. You have sent widows away empty. And, and, and this is really curious because now he is, he, he's got something he's been thinking about for 21 chapters. And now he's specific about 
his accusations uh, towards Job. You're, you're not all you think you are. And, you know, there's, 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 there's a little bit of a disconnect here uh, because the accusations that are in uh, chapter 22, verses 5 uh, through 9, um, they, they don't really line up with what God said in the first part of the book. So either Eliphaz is just making stuff up or it's a little bit of jealousy. We, we maybe see that uh, again uh, in, in a couple of other places where um, uh, way back when Zophar's speech in chapter 20, um, it, it feels like Job, uh, his, his former success caused some jealousy because in Zophar's words, they're, they're not God's words. And Eliphaz now here, these, these are his words. He doesn't say, God said, the spirit said. He, he's just kind of going rogue on his own. And then the third cycle starts in chapter 23. Now, Chapter 23 is really sad to me, and I'm going to stop uh, just going through the book here in a minute because I, I really want us to talk about the what this book means. The third cycle of the speech uh, writing gets sad to me because Job now feels like he's lost sight of God. He, he doesn't feel like he knows him anymore. He says, uh, oh, that I knew where I might find him. Verse seven, then an upright man could argue with him. If, if, if I thought that God even heard my prayers, then I, I could argue with him. I could bring my complaint. I go forward, he's not there. Verse eight, I go backwards, I don't perceive him. On the left hand, when he's working, I don't behold him. He turns to the right hand, I, I can't see him but he knows the way I take. And when he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. My foot has held fast to his steps. I have kept his way and I have not turned aside. So Job is holding on to his integrity and he keeps that going through another couple of chapters. The uh, Bildad is going to speak one more time in chapter 25, and Job will answer him uh, with the majesty of God, but he maintains his integrity. Beginning in verse uh, chapter 26, only Job is speaking. The, the, the three friends have, have fallen away, and Job's final appeal is in chapter 31. And in the end of chapter 31, verse 40, we have the words of Job are ended. So then the young kid says, well, I got something to say. And so chapter 32, 33, 34, and 35, the young guy, Elihu, begins to speak. And he extols God's greatness. He says over and over, the spirit is speaking through me. 
The Spirit is speaking in me. He proclaims God's majesty, and he finishes his uh, speech at the end of chapter 37, and then one of the most powerful sections in all of Scripture begins when God says, I've had enough. I've had enough of your human speeches. Had enough of all of you. I've had enough of you, Job, and your pride. I've had enough of your friends and their uh, pretending to know my heart and my mind. Now I'm going to talk for a little while. And, and I can, the Lord answered him out of a whirlwind. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I love that. I do too. Get ready. <laughs> you know, in Genesis chapter 12, Abraham is complaining to God that he doesn't have a child. And he's got fame and he's got fortune and he's got the promise of God that he will have a child. And Abraham complains to God, I don't care about fame and fortune. I want a child. And the next verse says, God told him to step outside. A southern boy knows that when God, when anybody tells you to step outside, that's not a good thing. <laughs> There's going to be some fighting. <laughs> and when God tells you to step outside, it's not going to end well. Well, that's kind of what he said here. Strap it on. Gird up your, your loins. Put on your, put on your armor. Put on your big boy pants. And let's, let's have a little conversation here. And so God goes for several chapters and he says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Where were you when I told the sea to come this far and no farther? Have you commanded the morning? Do you tell the sun to get up? Have you entered the springs of the sea? Do you comprehend, verse 18, the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know this. I'm waiting. He says, do you, do you know your, 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 verse 21, you know, for you were born then, right? Uh, chapter 20, 38, verse 21. He, he says, you, you were around, right? In my Bible, I wrote godly sarcasm. You were around, right? You're as old as I am. You, you know all this. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow? Verse 22. You tell the rain where to go. Uh, chapter 39, verse 1. Do you know where the mountain goats give birth? I'm Job. I'm going, why would I know that? <laughs> why would anybody need to know that? Do you observe the calving of the does? Do you number the months? Verse 9 in chapter 39. Is the wild ox willing to serve you? That's a fascinating verse. Will he spend the night in your manger? Little prophecy there, huh? Verse 2 of chapter 40. Will a fault finder contend with the Almighty? So now he's pronouncing that Job has wronged somebody. He's wronged God. And the sin is presumption. So Job... Uh, Promises silence. Job answered the Lord. He says, I, 
How, what shall I answer you? I, I lay my hand on your mouth. And God said, good idea, but I'm not finished. <laughs> in verse 6 in chapter 40, he picks it back up. The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. Dress for action. I'll question you. You answer me. You want to put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be right? Have you an arm like God? Can you thunder with a voice like his? If I'm Job, I'm pretty tired of hearing that thundering voice. Chapter 40, verse 15, he says, Behold, Behemoth. And Behemoth would have been uh, sort of representative of all the land animals. And then Leviathan in verse uh, uh, one of chapter 41 would have been representative of all the, the water animals, the sea animals. But he goes on and on. And in chapter 41, verse 34, God finishes his speech. And he says he sees everything. He is king over all the sons of pride. I love that line. He is king over all the sons of pride. I obviously wrote my own name. So chapter 42 is Job's prayer of repentance. It's, it's beautiful. He said, I, I know you can do all things. Your, no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel? I, I've uttered that, I, that which I didn't understand, things that are too wonderful for me. Uh, my eye now sees you. Remember in the second cycle, he was, or third cycle, he was grieving because he couldn't see God. Now I see you. I despise myself. I repent in dust and ashes. And then God rebuked his friends he does not mention Elihu. We don't know why. And then Job's fortunes are restored and he dies an old man full of days. What do we learn in what I would consider one of the most difficult books in all of the scripture? We use the word sovereign and it's a difficult word because it has provoked a debate that Paul picked up in Romans 9 uh, is God's sovereignty absolute do we as humans have any free will do we have the ability to choose to respond to him do we have the ability to choose not to respond to him predestination is God's sovereignty absolute I think it was Jim Johnson that said that his explanation of God's sovereignty is that God values love more than he values power that God values love could he make me behave yeah one of the most dangerous prayers you can pray is, Lord, make me a better Christian. Yeah. What if he did? <laughs> what if he took away everything that's not helping? So, so his sovereignty is absolute. We see that in Job. And so when, when we come at God with, 
Why do bad things happen to good people? Why am I suffering? Why does my relative have Alzheimer's? Why did breast cancer attack a woman so young? Why is my son off the rails? What did, what did I do to deserve that? Why do people have to be mean? Why did I lose my job? Why did I lose my house? Why did they foreclose on my mortgage? Why am I suffering? And over against that, we've got God is sovereign. And if God is sovereign, then nothing can separate us from his love. Nothing can separate us from his love. So I look around the room and I, I, I look online. Uh, you know, Fred's recovering from uh, cancer. Jennifer's still not living in her house because a tree fell on it. Uh, I, I can go around the room and, and there's, there's stuff that all of us have been through. And we've all asked the questions that Job asked. That's why the book is so accessible to me. I've asked all of those questions. I've accused God. I've, I've said, why would you let this happen? Well, why do I have to try to go be with that family and explain why their teenager got killed in the car? What, what, God, what, why would you do that? And the answer is we can't know. We can't know. It is true. Some suffering is due to choice. Some suffering is consequence. And sometimes we know that consequence and sometimes we don't. You know, we, we, we don't always know when a human has caused their own suffering. And we certainly don't know when a human has caused someone else to suffer. But it's, it happens. Some suffering is due to circumstance. You, you were in the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, I, I don't know how many times I've been walking on, on in Dunwoody. You, you've probably seen me. I walk a lot in Dunwoody. And more than once, I've seen a car coming from the opposite direction. And I was really sure they were texting on their phone because they were looking like they were headed for the curb. And I'm going, that happens to people. They're walking along, minding their own business, and a car jumps the curb. Wrong place, wrong time. Nobody did anything. Okay, well, the driver probably shouldn't have been texting, but nobody, no, the, I didn't cause that. So there is there is some suffering that is okay. I guess I need to skip to the end because we're about out of time. What is what are we instructed in the New Testament about suffering? What First Jesus Go ahead. Go ahead, Nelson. First Thessalonians 6.18 has gotten me through the worst times I've had. Quote it. Uh, this is the will of God for you. 
rejoice. So we're commanded to rejoice in our sufferings. What did Jesus say in the Beatitudes? What's the last one? Blessed are you when men revile you and curse you and persecute you and say all manner of evil about you for my sake. What does Philippians 2 say? The great Christ hymn in verses 5 through 11. Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard Godness a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant, being found in the form of a bondservant, made in the likeness of man. He exalted, God exalted him. He humbled himself to the point of obedience, even to the point of death. And at his death, God highly exalted him, gave him the name above all names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow, those in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We emulate his suffering. We emulate his humility. The, the early church felt like if they suffered, they were identified with Christ who suffered. We are identified in his sufferings. Does God want us to suffer? He hurts when we hurt. He weeps when we weep. But he alone knows the outcome of that suffering. He alone knows the testimony that can help another. He alone knows what we will learn in the pain of our suffering. He alone knows how he will walk with us through that. Because nothing can separate us from the love of God. Not death nor life, seen, unseen, kingdoms, principality, height, depth, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Why do some suffer more than others? We don't know. We, we, we don't know. We, what has he called us to do in suffering? Come alongside people who are sit with them in silence. We, we probably presume on God if we try to explain their suffering to them. I try not ever to say, I know how you feel, unless I do. <laughs> you tell me, you lost your father, I, I know how you feel, I lost my father. But I, I try to avoid that because I, I, I love the example that is given Job's three friends who came to sit with him in silence. I have no idea how I'm going to do this in 20 minutes on Sunday. We have 16 first graders to give Bibles to. And I am over the moon about that. 16 first graders are getting a Bible. And, um, and we get to break it open for them. All right. Well, folks, I guess uh, we'll call it a night. We have covered the entire book of Job less in less than an hour. All right. I'll see you guys next week.